If we haven't met, uh, my name is Will, and I have the privilege of serving as the pastor here at Crossroads. And I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a licensed counselor. Um, but I am a pastor. And what that means is that I have had the privilege of being invited in the, the deepest parts of many people's lives. And so I've been with many people on their best days. I've been in the hospital rooms when children are born, or not in the rooms, in the waiting room. Uh, I've been at funerals. I've been in hospital waiting rooms when bad news was received. I've been with people in the worst moments and in the best moments and in moments in between. I've had many pastoral counseling meetings where people have shared with me all sorts of difficult parts of their stories. And one of the things that I have come to be convinced of is that for many people, the trajectory of their lives is put in motion by the relationship that they have with their father. For some reason, the blessing or the lack of a blessing from a father can set someone on a course in one direction or another. This is just what I've experienced as I've, I've interacted with people and watched many lives play out, our relationship and our experience of our earthly fathers shapes who we are and who we're becoming. It's one of the mo more significant things in our lives that shapes who we are. And what I've equally found is true is that what you think about God and what you think that God thinks of you or what your experience of God is significantly shapes how you will think about yourself and how you will live. A.W. Tozer, the famous theologian, said, what you think about God is the most important thing that you think about. You see, we're starting a new book study on the book of or the letter to the Ephesians today, and this is a back-to-the-basics kind of letter in the Scriptures. Okay, it, it, this is not... Uh, nothing complicated about Ephesians. This is just basic theology, basic Christianity. I mean, it is, if you want us to have the New Testament summed up in one book, Ephesians is it. And this letter is going to teach us at the most basic level what God is like, what he has done, how he feels about us, and how we can live as a response. And today, we begin by looking at the first 14 verses. And in these 14 verses, we find out what God is like, our Heavenly Father is like, how much He values us, and the great lengths with which He will go to adopt us and welcome us into His family as His children. The good news of God and God's love is that even if you have an earthly father who has neglected you or belittled you or hurt you, you have a Father in heaven who will stop at nothing and will pay any price to welcome you into his family and to show you that he accepts you and that he approves of you. And one of the things I've seen, I talked about earthly fathers and your heavenly father, is that I've seen in many people's lives as I've been in ministry, is that when somebody can understand the love in which the heavenly father loves them, it can overwhelm all the complexities of, a of an earthly father who has abandoned them. And so what we think about our heavenly father really matters because it can reshape the parts of our lives that have been shaped by our earthly fathers. So let's look in Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. 
Paul, he says, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he gets into it. He doesn't waste any time. He gets right into the letter. He says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will and to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, meaning Christ. In him, meaning Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Now, that passage, that's a lot. And you could, we could spend 8, 10, 12 weeks just unpacking those 14 verses. But what I love about that, that passage is, did you, as I was reading it, did it feel kind of a little bit clunky grammatically? It felt like, I, like where, you're, where are you supposed to breathe as you read that? The reason it sounds like that is because in Greek, that's actually one sentence. So in our Bible, we have punctuation marks, but in the original Greek, that is one long run-on sentence that the Apostle Paul wrote. And when I think of Paul, Paul just, I mean, he jumps right into it, and he's writing to the Ephesians, and he's just telling them how great our God is. And when I think of it, I think of this, and it's like he's spilling over with excitement. I think of those moments. I've got three small kids and I've got one, I'm not going to name which one, that is really talkative, okay? Actually, they're all really talkative, but I have one in particular that loves to share every detail of every story of everything that ever happened. And I don't know if you've ever had this with your kids, but your kid comes up to you after a day at school or at the playground, and you're like, Dad, you're not going to guess what happened. And then I did this, and then my friend did this, and then we did that, and then we went, and I had this as a snack, and then we did that, and then I jumped in the water, and then I and you're like, what? Slow down. Have you ever had to tell your kids to breathe for a moment? You're like, you breathe for a second. Sometimes you think, like, Will, you need to breathe while you're preaching. I get excited. When we get excited, we just, we just go after it. And that's sort of what Paul does here. He's so excited to tell the Ephesian Christians all that God has done for them that he just begins with this long run-on sentence where he never even takes a moment to lift his pen off the page. And this is what he, he's so excited to tell us how God has loved us, how God has redeemed us, and how God has adopted us. And at its very core, Paul begin, this passage that I just read is a passage about adoption. Paul begins this letter by telling us that we've been adopted by God. This is a passage about the fatherhood of God. So whatever you have in mind, whether you had a great earthly dad or whether you had a really difficult earthly dad and, you're, and it's mixed when you think about it, 
whatever your experience of an earthly father is, this passage helps us get an understanding of what our heavenly father is like. And it shows how God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all work together to adopt us into his family. We sang a song just a moment ago, praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one. You see, as Christians, we believe that God is mysteriously one God and three persons. Three persons, one God. Three and one, one and three. It's a mystery. But in this passage, we see Paul says that this mysterious God that we can't wrap our minds around, wrap your minds around this, he's adopted you. The father adopts, chooses the children. The son, Jesus, pays the adoption price, and the spirit guarantees all the benefits of the adoption. So let's look at how this plays out. The father, first thing we see is that the father chooses and adopts his children. Blessed be the God and father, Paul says, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has has blessed us in the beloved. What Paul says here is that before the world was, God knew you. Before the world ever came into being, before your great, 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 great grandparents ever came into being, God knew you and chose you to be a part of his family to receive, and to receive all the benefits that he offers, all the, the, spiritual, all the, bless, the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. He chose you before the foundation of the world to receive all the love and all the blessings that he has to offer. You, before the foundation of the world, he has already chosen to give you an inheritance, a new name, a new identity, all marked and protected by a loving father. Paul says that when we are adopted by God, we become sons. And somebody says, well, that's kind of sexist. What about daughters? Is he not ta- are women not allowed in the family of God? No, no, no. This isn't a sexist statement at all. In fact, later in the book, Paul is going to say that we're all the bride of Christ. Okay, so there's going to become that moment later. But right now, Paul is not saying that we're sons, and it's not excluding women. What's happening is Paul is saying that even women can be adopted as sons. And that, at this time, when this letter was written, was a radically countercultural statement. In this time in history, only, because in this time in history, only sons were heirs to their father's inheritance. And only sons received the inheritance of the father. And typically, the firstborn son received most of it. So the secondborn, thirdborn, they received a fraction, but the daughters didn't receive anything. It was the sons that received the inheritance. But now, Paul says, through Christ, the father chooses both men and women as his heirs to receive all of his inheritance, all that he offers. This is precisely what is beautiful about biblical adoption, is that the father chooses and adopts all of us, brings us into his family, and gives us everything that is his. And what's beautiful about biblical adoption is that the father already has a firstborn, doesn't he? Christ, the firstborn of all creation. Our heavenly father already has a son, already has a firstborn, already has an heir. And so what we see right off the bat in this passage is that God does not adopt us out of some sense of childlessness. 
or some sense of need or some sense of loneliness. God is not lacking. God has no need. He does not need you for him to be happy. He does not need you for him to not be lonely. He does not need you to carry out his mission in the world. He already has a son that's capable of doing all those things. He already has an heir who is the, an heir to everything that is his. But God, in his mercy and in his grace, he makes room for you and for me in his family. And everything that the Father has for his son, Jesus, he freely gives to us. So in this culture, adoption wasn't viewed as cuddly and generous and kind as it is today. Adoption is seen generally as a really good thing here. Adoption is good. Amen? Anybody? My wife's adoption social worker. My oldest son is adopted. Adoption is good. But in this culture, adoption was kind of seen as a plan B. And it was seen as something that was, that was real, almost shameful. Adoption would happen when an older man who was getting up in years, his wife was past childbearing age, they, it didn't look like they were going to have a son. An older man at this point in his life would become fearful that he didn't have an heir. And men without a son, without having an heir in those days, it meant that the name didn't go on. And that was a big deal. It meant that they didn't have anyone to give their inheritance to. It, didn't, it meant that they didn't have anyone to carry on their legacy. And this was a big deal to them. And so what would happen is older men who didn't have a son would take, they would adopt a male slave. And then they would make the slave their son and make them an heir and would give them all, they would give them all the benefits of a son. And their wealth and their name would go on with this slave. And adoption was always a plan B given to someone that they didn't really love, that they didn't really have an, a, an affection toward, but rather it was a very transactional thing where we adopt you so you can carry out our, our legacy. It was not seen as desirable. It wasn't done out of love. It was done out of self-preservation on the part of the Father. But God, our Father, flips this whole thing on its head. And he says, I already, I already have a son with whom I'm well pleased. But I will adopt more sons and I will adopt more daughters because I am gracious and my blessings are limitless and because I love those whom I created and it is my joy to give all that I have to those whom I have adopted. Russell Moore, in his book, Adopted for Life, which I encourage everyone to read. My wife and I read it years ago, and it is one of the things that inspired us to adopt our son. But Russ Moore says, The New Testament continually points to our adoption in Christ in order to show us that we are really, really wanted in the Father's house. You are wanted by God. You're wanted by God. God accepts you, he approves you, he wants you in his family. That's good news. Because how many of us don't feel wanted sometimes? How many of us have lost sleep because we don't feel desired? Or we don't feel wanted, or we don't feel accepted, or we don't feel approved? Don't, I know you guys have been in church a long time, you've heard God loves you, God accepts you. But don't in this moment let the truth of that go over your head and not hit you in the heart. Because God accepts you, and he wants you. That is good news. Because we all know how painful it is not to be chosen. Do you guys remember when you were in school as a kid, and you weren't, and you were, you weren't being picked for, for uh, kickball? You remember how just, how just the shame of that? 
You're like, all right, you know, team captains, it was always the bullies. They got to be the team captains, and they're like, oh, that guy hates me. He's never going to pick me. And it's like first round goes by, second draft pick, third draft pick, and you're just sitting there. And as the crowd gets smaller and smaller and everybody goes to their teams, you're standing there. You feel all alone. You feel unwanted, and you feel undesirable. Anybody remember that, or was I just really bad at kickball? That's an awful feeling. Anybody remember that? And do you guys remember how hard it was when you were in high school or middle school and you weren't included in the clique or in the popular group that you wanted to be a part of? And I don't know if any of you ever did this, but I have phases of my life where I changed the way I dressed. I changed the music that I pretended to like in order to be accepted by a certain group. Right? And so maybe, you, I don't know if I'm the only one here, but I have had like a phase in my life where I was like a skateboard kid. You know, I had a phase in my life where I was like really into heavy metal or I pretended I was really into heavy metal, but I never actually was into heavy metal. I, I never understood it, but I was like, yeah, totally, you know. I've had phases where, you know, I tried to be this or I tried to be that. And it just, you know how hard it when you're just trying to figure out who you are and you start to take on identities, not because those are who you are, but because those are what you think other people expect you to be so that they will accept you. And you start taking on identities, not because it's who God has wired you to be, but you start taking on identities because you're afraid and you're insecure that you're not acceptable. And so you try to become a person that you believe is acceptable by your dad, by your friend group, by your coach, by whoever it is that you're craving approval from. Because we're so afraid of rejection that we will become something we're not so that we don't have to feel the pain of it. Anybody feel me? <laughs> because rejection is awful, and it's painful, and it wounds us. And in order pr to protect ourselves, we will do whatever we can to avoid it. But isn't it good news that the God who created you, the one whose opinion of you really should be the only opinion that really matters, you don't have to wonder how he feels about you. You can breathe. Like, you can breathe. You can relax and you can rest in the approval of your heavenly father. He chose you. He loves you. He has adopted you. You're free. You're free. So the father chooses you. That gives us freedom. But the second thing you need to see through the work of the Trinity that we're adopted because Jesus Christ pays the adoption fees. In Christ, verse 7 says, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Verse 11, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You say, how is it possible that I've been adopted by God? It's possible that you've been adopted by God because of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. The father, you, you know, people think, well, you know, the father did not just snap his fingers and make us into adopted sons. There's always a cost involved with adoption. When my wife and I adopted our son, I'll just be straight up honest, it cost us a lot of money. A lot, you can look it up. It's not fun. And it's, it, it's, it, but it cost us a lot of money. It cost us a lot of anxiety it lost us a, a lot of mental energy. It cost us blood, literally. Like the amount of blood work you have to do for this thing is crazy. We, I mean, and it, it, it cost us years of waiting 
You guys know how painful it is to wait on a child? It's one of the hardest things in the world. The cost was great for adoption, but we gladly, I'm an, such an imperfect father. I've been an imperfect father today, okay? I don't even have to tell you. I'm such an imperfect father, but I, in that moment, was willing to pay whatever it cost, whatever it took to get my son home because I already loved him and we chose him. And we were willing to pay whatever it took for him to come into our family. You see, adoption always costs something. And it cost your heavenly father greatly. It cost him the life of his beloved son, Jesus. John 3.16. Tim Tebow wear, used to wear it on his eyes. It's a, one of the most famous passages in the Bible. John 3.16. For God so loved the world, what? That he gave he gave up his only son so that whoever believes in Christ will not perish but will have everlasting life. Most of us, if we're honest, we have a hard time with the cross, don't we? If we're honest about it. Because we go, why did it take blood? Why did it take sacrifice? Why would Jesus have to die in order for us to live? Why would the father have to give up his firstborn son so that we could be adopted as children? I mean, good, I mean, God is, he's the creator of all things. Couldn't he just snap his fingers and make it all go away? That's not a new question, and it's actually a good question. In the 12th century, there was a guy named Anselm of Canterbury was teaching his students about God's wrath towards sin. He was talking about the cross. He was saying Jesus had to die in order for us to live. And one of his students, who is actually a pretty smart guy because he's asking good questions, but he has a name that makes him sound like he wasn't so smart. His name was Bozo. Bozo speaks up and he says, Anselm, why didn't God just get rid of sin without all the destruction, without the bloody cross? Why did Jesus have to die? And Anselm replied, you, Bozo, have not yet considered how heavy the weight of sin truly is. What Anselm said and what the scriptures and what Christian tradition teaches is that our sin and sin is so grievous to a holy God that it can't simply be brushed aside with no, just with the snap of a finger. For God to bring justice to the crime of our sin, our rebellion, he must pour out his judgment on something. Something has to pay the adoption cost. God had to pour out his judgment on sinful people. Or he had to pour out his judgment on an innocent person who willingly volunteered to pay the penalty of the sins for others. And this is what Jesus did. God gave his son who lived a perfect life, a life that doesn't deserve any wrath, any judgment, any punishment, does not deserve death, only, reward, only deserves reward, only deserves inheritance. Jesus was perfectly obedient to the Father, but yet, in the end, he put himself in the place of you and me to receive God's judgment for our sin on himself. He bears the punishment for our sins, though he never sinned himself. And the scriptures tell us that if we will simply humble ourselves to admit that we need Jesus to receive our sins for us, then our sins will be forgiven and we will be adopted as sons. But you see, our salvation doesn't simply end with our sins being forgiven. It ends with us being adopted. You see, Martin Luther calls it the great exchange. He says that Jesus stands in our place, but we get to stand in his. This is what it means to be considered an heir. Jesus is the firstborn son. 
he lives the life of a prodigal. Or, or he dies that we live the lives of a prodigal and he dies the death of a prodigal. Though he never lived the life, he lived a perfect life. Jesus is the firstborn son. He earned the inheritance, but yet he freely stands in our place, takes our judgment, and trades us his reward. And we are told that if we are align our lives with the life of Jesus, we will be given all of his blessings. All that he earned in his perfect life is now ours. You see, when we receive the adoption of God, everything that Christ ever earned in his life is now credited to our lives. I want you to think about this for a moment. If our inheritance is based upon the life of Jesus, think how large of an inheritance that is. I mean, we, God the Father looks on us as if we lived that life. And he says, I'm going to bless you with every spiritual blessing in heaven. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, don't forget this, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is ours for the taking. Every spiritual blessing, eternal life, life with God, presence of God, unity around the, the around. Uh, Unity, you know what I mean? Like there's this picture in Revelation 22 where every tribe, tongue, nation, and language is around the throne of God and we're all singing the same song in a millions of different languages, thousands of different languages to God who sits on the throne. And we're family and we're united and we're united with Christ, we're united with one another and Christ earned all of it. None of us did. But yet we all get to participate in it. You guys know how crazy it is when a team wins. Uh, it, I've lived in New York for going on seven years now. And we've yet to win a major championship. It's going to happen. Always next year. Can you tell me I'm a Mets fan? What happens when a team wins a championship, though? Usually a bunch of dudes who need a life, I, and I'm one of those guys. We get way too wrapped up in sports. We run out into the streets with another guy's name on our back. And we celebrate, and we flip over cars, and we buy meals we can't afford, and we go to parades, and there's confetti everywhere, and we're shouting, and we're screaming, and we're hugging one another, and we're all going crazy. Why? Because a bunch of kids won a game. The guy on our jersey did all the work, and we're the ones partying in the streets. That's what heaven is, you guys, except for way better. We are going to be in a place we don't belong, celebrating gifts we don't deserve, not because of who we are, but because we have the jersey of Jesus and everything he has accomplished is now given to us. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. The Father chooses, we're adopted by the cross of Christ, Jesus pays the adoption fees. And then finally, it's the Holy Spirit that guarantees our inheritance. It says, verse 13, In him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit, it says, seals our inheritance and guarantees it. What does that mean? It means two things. First, it means if you are a son... It means that the Holy Spirit seals our inheritance. Okay, what does that mean? If you're a son, then you ought to have an inheritance, right? At my home, 
I have a last will and testament. If you, I mean, everybody should have one of these. Go to, you know, find somebody, get one. And what my last will and testament says is it lays out, if something were to happen to me, if I were to die tomorrow, my last will and testament says this is what needs to happen to all of my money. I've got retirement accounts. I've got savings accounts. I've got uh, life insurance policies, all of those things. And what happens, all of my money, all my possessions, all of my wealth, if I were to die, goes to my family. And eventually, it'll all go to my children. My children are listed in that will. Everything that is mine is theirs. Everything that is mine is theirs. Every dollar I have, every possession I own, it's theirs. And when you write a will, you need a will for there to no, be no complications. But you can write a will all you want. You can write on a sheet of paper, I want all my stuff to go to my kids, and it means nothing. Do you know what you need for it to become legally binding? You need a seal. Where do you get one? You go across the street to a notary public, get them to stamp the seal. That seal is what makes your last will and testament legally binding. We have been sealed. Our salvation has been sealed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what guarantees that everything that the, that the Son has earned for us and everything that the Father has chosen to give us will be given to us. Verse 14 says, However, that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So the Holy Spirit is also, it's, the, it's a guarantee. It's a deposit into what is coming. What I mean by that is the Spirit, that God sends the Holy Spirit into your life to give you assurance that you will be given your full, etern, uh, full inheritance in eternity in the new heavens and new earth. So you guys all know this. When you rent an apartment in New York City, what do you got to put down? You got to put down first month's rent, last month's rent, and a security deposit. What's the security deposit? The security deposit is a guarantee. You give the landlord a sum of money, and it guarantees that even larger sums of money will be coming. You, your, your security deposit is a gift to the landlord that says, I promise you more is coming. You see, the Holy Spirit is that for you. You see, in this life, we live between, you know, there's this eternity that awaits us, and then we're still living in this fallen, broken world. But in the middle of this fallen, broken world, we're given the Holy Spirit. We're given His power, His goodness, His joy, His life, and the Holy Spirit is there to give us glimpses of heaven while we still live on this earth, as to guarantee us and to remind us that more is coming. We long for eternity with God, but until then, the Spirit is what gives us glimpses of it here and now. This is why the Spirit is called the first fruits of our salvation. We live confidently today knowing that more is coming. God says, I'm going to give you more blessings, but until then, I'm sending you my Holy Spirit that will be with you until the rest of it comes. You are going to be healed completely in the new heavens and new earth. Those of you who are sick, you're going to be healed in the new heavens and new earth. But today, you have the presence of the Holy Spirit to comfort you until that day comes. You are going to be free from that burden that is plaguing you in eternity. But today, you have the strength given to you by the Holy Spirit to get you through today until that day comes. See, the Spirit gives us the power and the confidence to live fully 
as sons today, even as we await the day where we see our Heavenly Father face to face. The Spirit is the assurance of God's promise that we will be with Him forever. And we know this is true because the Spirit is with us now. Now, one of my mentors years ago was sharing a story with me, and he was telling a story. He, he went back to preach at a church that he had previously been the pastor of. So he goes back, you know, a decade later or, or more, and he goes, I, you know, I was going to preach at a church that he had previously been the pastor of for several years. And he said, you know, I stood up, and it was so great to see faces that I haven't seen in, you know, a decade or so. And he said, but while I was preaching, I noticed something. He said, I noticed a man in the crowd sitting in the back. And he said, I remembered this guy from like 20 years earlier. He was the neighborhood drunk. He was the guy who was always, you know, causing a ruckus, always out in the streets, always getting into trouble, always giving people a hard time. He said, but as I was preaching, I looked and I noticed, and here was this guy taking notes in his Bible. He said, I watched him as the music came on, and this guy was singing loudly, and he looked good. He didn't look disheveled and broken down like he used to. And he said, after the service was over, he was like, I had to find this guy. And he said, so I immediately went to the back of the room after I was done teaching. And I said, you've changed. What happened to you? And he said, well, pastor, he said, I came to faith in Christ about 10 years ago when I was 60 years old. And he says, as you well know, he said, before that, I spent most of my life addicted to various substances, in and out of jail, several failed marriages, And he said to my friend, he said, I have no one to blame but myself. I made the poor choices. He said, but when I look back on my childhood, when I look back on the home that I grew up in, he said, all my father ever said to me was, son, you can't do anything right. Son, you're just downright dumb. Son, you're destined to be a failure. Son, you're never going to amount to anything. Son, you can't do it. And he said to my friend, he said, well, I guess I became what my daddy always said I would be. He said, but 10 years ago, I got a new dad who spoke a better word over me, spoke a better truth over me, and gave me his spirit to change me. He said, I now have a heavenly father who says that I'm loved and that I'm accepted. He said, I now have a heavenly father who has chosen me and wants me in his presence. I'm not a nuisance to him. I'm not a bother, but rather I'm welcomed into his presence. He said, and not only did I receive a father, he said, but I've been given his spirit and his spirit has changed me, transformed me, has sobered me up and has given me new life. And he said, now as a 70 year old man, I can sit in the back of this church and praise the father, praise the son, praise the spirit three in one because I have been adopted into the family of God. In a moment, we're going to take communion. and It's a time where we remember the death of Christ and his resurrection. And what we confess when we take communion is what Romans 10, 9 says. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. You see, if you believe that God raised Christ from the dead for you, you can celebrate that you have been chosen by God and all the blessings of Christ belong to you. And if you're here and you're like, I'm not sure what I believe about faith. I'm not sure what I believe about Jesus. I don't know what it would ever even feel like to have the type of acceptance and approval that you're talking about or to experience God's blessing. What does that look like? 
the way we receive the blessings of God is that we simply receive it. My oldest son was adopted when he was seven months old. What did he do to be adopted? Nothing. He got scooped up in our arms and he just received the hug. That's what it means to be adopted by God. You don't have to clean yourself up today. You don't have to fill out a form. You don't have to go through a process. You simply receive the love of God that he has extended to you. And so I hope you'll do that today.